Welcome back to another episode of the Sunday Stash, here with episode number 21. And, you know, I'm actually glad that the uh, the weather here where I'm living is starting to clear up a little bit. Uh, this past week, I was able to take the opportunity to go outside and start all of my bikes. Um, so I actually have three motorcycles. Um, you know, I normally actually ride all the time, but here recently, the weather has been super, super cold. And it's actually been snowing a lot where I live, um, so I haven't really taken the opportunity to go do it. Uh, so the boat bikes needed to be warmed up, uh, so I let them run and, and did all that. Uh, one, The first bike that I have is a uh, 2014 KLR 650. Uh, it's the most reliable bike that I have. It's also the newest. It's also the most fun to ride, in my opinion, as well. So a lot of fun there. I have a 2003 Buell XB9R. That's a uh, sport bike. Buell's a bike that was made by Harley back in the day, um, and they don't make it anymore. I have heard that they're supposedly making a comeback, but I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. Uh, then the last one that I have is uh, a 1982 KZ550. Um, I bought that one last summer. I uh, definitely definitely almost a 40 year old bike uh, the wiring is definitely almost 40 years old uh, so I got I got some work to do on that so it should be a good time uh, this summer as I um, start to pack everything up to move and start actually uh, getting my bikes and stuff up and, and ready to ride uh, the, that 1982 bike is a lot of fun to uh, to ride so it's, it's a good time to to have to have all of those so anyway um i will uh go ahead and get into my uh, topics for the week i've only got three of them uh, the first one does have a decent amount of stuff in it it's the normal news from the week so it's just a couple of topics that i got that i thought was uh pretty important then uh, number two is my international soccer update as usual there was some uh, champions league games uh this past week so i figure take an opportunity to talk about those and then the last topic I want to talk about is the COVID relief bill that was recently passed by the House here in the U.S. We'll get into it. News from the week. Um, I mentioned this one last week. It's the protest slash the coup that's happened in Myanmar. Um, I did want to actually give a little bit of background on that so uh, because uh, it is a continuing story and uh, it is pretty wild, uh, the stuff that's happening over there, at least in my opinion. So... I'm admittedly don't necessarily know everything about the history of this country and the history of everything that's going on, but I am going to give it a shot in uh, in trying to put together some of the the pieces of of everything that happened here. Myanmar had military rule all the way up until 2011, in which their constitution was signed in 2008, I guess, which um, gave them a way to have a transition to a democratic government. So then in, eventually they got to the point where they did these elections. And in 2015, the National League for Democracy ended up taking power from the military. But the military still maintained 25% of the parliament seats. The military was also able to select one of the two vice presidents that the country has. So and I think that's that personally, I think that sounds like a really odd deal for them to have. But I, I feel like if you're you're fighting for your freedom and you're negotiating, especially when you're signing a constitution, that that might have actually been the best deal that they could have gotten if 
the military was sitting there and saying, hey, we're going to give up some power. You guys, you know, and then we're going to become a doc- democracy. They probably never would have thought that they were get, they would get voted out. Um, so anyway, here in I think it was I think it was roughly last year, right around the same time that the U.S. election elections happened, they held their elections, um, and the National League for Democracy ended up winning 396 of the 476 seats. So that's one particular party, uh, and that's in their parliament. Um, and then the military uh, party, it's like a proxy party. It's a union, solidarity, and development party. They only won 33 of the seats. And, uh, you know, the military decided that they felt as though the, the vote was fraudulent and they needed to take back power. So basically, that's what they did. Uh, they placed all the members of parliament, parliament under house arrest and took the party leaders into custody. Uh, the military also took the steps to disrupt cellular cellular ability, TV broadcast ability, and phone lines to the Capitol. Uh, the military released a statement on their military-controlled TV that they were taking control of the country for a year to allow for fair, fresh elections to take place, which I think is pretty crazy. Uh, at least they've all, they've said that they're only going to hold it for a year, so I think maybe that's a good thing. I'm sure they probably don't really mean a year. Uh, they probably mean we're going to take control of the government until a favorable election for us, you know, for the military um, comes out. So that's probably what they meant, if I was guessing. Um, I don't know for certain, but if I had to guess. You know, over the month of February, people in Myanmar uh, started to protest more and more, and more and more people started to join those protests. Um, and there's actually been some reports of the police using live ammunition uh, to try to suppress the crowds. So it's getting pretty crazy over there, people fighting for um, for democracy and their freedoms. So uh, if you want to follow these protests, you can go and search on social media, um, 22222, I think it's uh, five twos. And then uh, you can also search the uh, you hashtag two 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 revolution. I'm not exactly sure as to the reason why that was uh, that was chosen, but uh, that's what it is. So it's uh, go on Twitter or something like that, and uh, and take a look. Even though you know Twitter is not necessarily the the greatest place to be, but you know so you can get some you can get some pictures and you can follow along with some of the stuff on on there. So I can't help but to think that the capital right here in the U.S. contributed to this. Uh, as I was reading some of the information about the background, uh, some of the events seemed very similar to what happened here. You know, one party believing that they have ex- they have experienced a fraudulent election. Um, there were people in the U.S. that were calling the election to be redone, which is kind of what the military is doing over there. Uh, I do think that the main difference between things that are happening in Myanmar and things that would happen in the United States is... I, I don't know for certain, but I would have to guess that a place like Myanmar doesn't have the freedom of like the, our Second Amendment in the United States where, you know, lots and lots and lots of people out there have guns to the point where if the military came in to try to take over, they would likely get overrun by the sheer number of people that have firearms in the U.S. So I, I feel like that's you know, part of the design that we have here in the U.S., and and I think that that makes it a good thing. It it does keep, kind of, keep the government in check a little bit. Now, I do know that the goal of the Democratic Party 
is to reduce that freedom as far as possible. But, you know, we'll see. And uh, as far as the, uh, the protests and the coup in Myanmar, I'll continue to follow that story and, and see what it is that happens. See if, uh, you know, order can be restored to, to that country. Uh, moving on, Joe Biden authorizes his first airstrike of his administration on Syria. Um, you know, this past Thursday, the U.S. military conducted airstrikes on a site in Syria of, of two Iranian-backed um, militia groups in response to rocket attacks on American forces. Um, and it seems as though Joe Biden was the person that had made the decision to conduct the airstrike. I think that the Secretary of Defense had agreed that it was a good thing to do, but I think Joe Biden was the one that ended up making the decision. And honestly, that one, I don't necessarily agree with it. I think you do have to show that you're not afraid to, to hit the button to fire. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I know that um, he's not really, his party isn't necessarily a, a bunch of people that like the regime change wars. And I don't think that those are necessarily good, but... I do think that as the president, right, one month in, you do have to kind of uh, show. You have to do show that force that, that you're willing to, to, to take those steps. So I don't necessarily 100% agree with the, the decision to, you know, escalate things in the Middle East, but I do understand why that may have happened. Um, the next topic here is uh, the first migrant facility opens up under the uh, Biden administration. And in a shocking twist of irony, the uh, this first one was opened up. Uh, I just, I find that kind of funny that uh, he had said that, you know, so much, so much hate was given to the Trump administration for this. It just seems a little hypocritical to me. So anyway, for some context here, um, the camp was not built by Biden. It was just opened up. Um, there had been a camp this camp, this particular place, and I say camp as just a, a, a term, um, I, you can use facility, you can use a station, you can use anything. I, I'm going to use the term camp, I guess. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. But the camp had been open for a month in 2019 and is now being used to hold up to 17 children. I mean, 700 children from the ages of 13 to 17 you know, and in January of this year, 2021, there has been an influx in unaccompanied children coming to the U.S., and they need a place to put these put these kids. So, I get why it got opened up. Um, you know, it kind of sounds to me as though it's something that might have been unavoidable. Um, if the number of children at the border are increasing, um, they're going to have to put them somewhere for processing. Uh, you know, these, these, this particular facility, uh, this camp, is operated by the Health and Human Services Department, and these are different. Than, uh, this facility, this place, is, def is different than the places that were operated by Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. And from what I was able to gather, um, the places that are operated by ICE are considered the kids in cages place places, whereas the Health and Human Services are not. So I think that that is uh, some context that people need to understand here. Um, you know, but both of those, both of those give people a bad feeling. I just find it funny that during the Trump administration, they 
um, they gave him such a hard time and gave them such a hard time about their immigration policy and everything that they were doing. And within one month, they open up a, a migrant facility. So it's just irony. Um, so, yeah. So what do you do here? You know, these children are coming to the border um, because they don't want to live in the country that they're in for whatever reason it is. Um, yeah, but what, what is it that we do? You know, do we turn them around and say that they need to go back? You know, and if you do that, you've, you might uh, be forcing them to face the danger of whatever it is that they're running from. It could be the cartel. It could be gangs. It could be, it could be a, a wide range of things, right? The second thing, right, would you, you allow them to in without checking to make sure that they're safe, right? If you don't, right, if you don't make sure that they end up with a family member or someone that's going to be able to take care of them, remember, these are 13 to 17-year-old kids. Yeah, a 17-year-old kid's going to be able to take care of himself, but a 13-year-old kid might not, he's not going to be able to go out and get a job for anything. So you want to make sure that they're going somewhere so that they're not living on the street, right? And additionally, you want to make sure that they're not going to get sold into some sort of sex trafficking, right? So, these facilities, I think, serve a purpose and have have a real reason for existing here in the U.S. Uh, you know, bottom line, um, we do have a broken immigration system here in the United in the U.S. And with that being said, I don't know the right answer to fix it. Uh, the U.S. has a limited number of people that we can allow in the country in a given year, as you know, and we can't just allow people to thousands and thousands of people to come walking across the border. Um, I think it's important to know who it is that's coming across the border and who it is that's going to be in, your, in the country, you know, so that you can ensure that they are a benefit to the society as opposed to being a drain on the society. Now, with all that being said, I will, uh, I will say that I'd be willing to offer up a solution of a trade. Um, you know, we, in, as the U.S., will toss out some of these fat, lazy, worthless Americans— you know, in exchange for some immigrants that want to come in and make the United States a better place. Um, I think that, you know, that wouldn't be too bad of a deal, right? I, I can't imagine that that would end up going badly for us. Um, it might go badly for the country that we're sending the fat, lazy, worthless Americans, but I think it would also uh, cause them to appreciate the, uh, the things that they've got. You know, just being born in the U.S. doesn't mean that you can be an absolute just lazy piece of shit. And I think that Americans need to understand that. Um, so if we had a policy like that, it would never pass. They'd never, ever, ever end up having that. But if they did, I think you'd probably start to see uh, a lot less, or maybe not a lot less, but some less lazy Americans. Um, you know, you'd have to start, you'd have to actually start seeing some um, people get sent a, sent to a foreign countries or something like that to uh, to actually shape up, I think. Anyway, I think that the administration is doing um, all that they really can. Um, I just, like I said before, I, I just find it funny that they give uh, such a hard time to Trump's policies, to all of this, and, you know, they don't ever, ever really have anything to say when their own party ends up making the same same thing. So it's just funny to think of. All right, moving on. Um, the U.S. declassified a report linking the Saudi crown prince uh, to the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and honestly, this doesn't really surprise me at all. Um, I think from the very beginning, everybody kind of knew that 
they were behind the killing of Khashoggi. And, um, you know, I personally, I'm not surprised at the fact that there aren't going to be any repercussions for Saudi Arabia, uh, because even though, even though they were, they were behind the killing, you know, uh, keep in mind that they probably have known for a while, even under the Trump administration, uh, this was a declassified report, I think from the, um, intelligence community. So it's not like this is like brand new information. They all knew that this is what it was going to be, Right. It probably, the report most likely was developed under the Trump administration, and now it's just been released under the Biden administration. And Biden, the Biden administration is the one that's going to end up having to take the heat for it. And the reality is, is that whether or not it was Trump's administration or Biden's administration, neither of them are going to do anything. That's just the way that it's going to be. Um, you know, I know that Back in the debate, Joe Biden had said that he would punish the Saudis and not sell them any more weapons, you know, but nothing's going to end up being done there. Um, You know, this was always going to be the choice. You know, Saudi Arabia is too much of an ally and a purchaser of weapons from the United States to do anything to them, right? And in the same statement where... Joe Biden condemned the crown prince. This was back in, a, in one of the debates. He also said that we should make it clear that we stand for human rights when it comes to China and the Uyghur population. But just last week, Joe Biden said that China is a different culture and he isn't going to tell them how to do things. Now that's paraphrasing, but he did say that he did say something about them being a different culture. Um, you know, and honestly, in his defense, he probably honestly doesn't even remember saying any of that stuff. The only reason anybody knows that he said it is because it's on video. You know, so in light of the airstrikes and the story on the border and all of this other stuff, I think that it's, you know, the thing that comes to mind is the Who's song, Won't Get Fooled Again. And I'm not talking about uh, George Bush here in his fool be can't be fooled again statement. Um, I'm mainly talking about the end where they say, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, you know, and realistically think about it. Is Joe Biden any different from any of these other presidents? Is he going to be any different from any of these other presidents? You know, are they going to come in and actually change much of anything? Or is it just going to be the same way that it always has been, right? We're going over to the Middle East for oil, and that's it. We're not going to end up tapping into anything that we've got. We're going to use all the oil that they have. I don't know. I I just don't think that much of anything is going to end up changing. And I guess the question now becomes, how many things did Joe Biden say on the campaign that were just outright lies, Right? Is he going to stick to anything that he said? Or is there 80 million people that have just been bamboozled in this election? I don't know. So we'll see how any of this goes uh, and see if Joe Biden has the guts to, uh, to stand up to uh, Saudi Arabia or China. I don't think he will. They're too big. They're too powerful. It's kind of like the banks in 2008. Too big to fail, right? I don't think he's going to do it, but we'll see. 
So last story here um, from the news. Um, anyone remember the story from a, a couple of years ago about this girl that was from the UK that decided that she was going to leave the UK and join ISIS and later made the decision to want to return to the UK? Well, the UK Supreme Court decided that she cannot return to Britain while she fights for her citizenship. Um, she is not allowed to return. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with uh, like national security issues and stuff like that. So for some background on this story, back in 2015, uh, a, a young schoolgirl, um, I think she was 15 at the time, her name is Shamima Begum. She left the UK to join ISIS. Now, in February of 2019, evidently she was missing for a while and no one knew where she was. Uh, that's what I've been able to, to find or to figure out. So in February of 2019, she had her citizenship revoked on national security grounds. Um, you know, some people consider that a human rights abuse. Yeah, but at the end of the day, she did join a terrorist organization. Um, and I'm not saying that she doesn't have human rights, but she joined a terrorist organization. I would say maybe she gave up her right to citizenship when she did that. She left the UK for Syria, and she joined a terrorist organization. Now, I, I also understand that she was young, right? She was under the age of 18, and, you know, most teenagers like that, usually they're going out and, and they're going to drink a six-pack of beer, or maybe they're going to smoke a joint or something like that. You know, that's their rebellion, you know, I, I kind of feel like she's kind of taking this whole rebellion thing to a whole new level. Um, so, I, I don't know if the, her age at the time is going to factor into this. So, we'll see. In June of 2019, she tried to uh, tried to return to the UK to appeal her citizen, the citizenship decision. Um, July of 2020, the UK, uh, so she was denied um, entry back into the into the UK in 2019. Um, in July of 2020, the UK appeals court said that she could return uh, to the UK for the appeal. And then in February here of 2021, the UK Supreme Court said that she can't return for the appeal. And the reason that they gave was her right to a fair trial, fair hearing does not trump all other considerations of national security. So since joining, she married another fighter and had three had three children, and all of them had actually died due to poor conditions. While being a member of ISIS, well, I guess it's actually ISIL now, she served as an enforcer in the morality police, in which she carried an AK-47 and tried to recruit other young women as well as enforce dress code restrictions. Um, I couldn't I couldn't find anything saying if she had actually killed anyone or committed any crimes. So I, I'm not going to speak on that. Um, currently, she is actually living in a Syrian refugee camp um, and has said that she did not regret joining the, the group um, but would like to return home. And she said that the strain of losing her children has been tough on her mental health and she needs therapy. And honestly, I'm, I'm pretty torn on, on this story, um, you know, as far as my opinion for her to return home. Because part of me wants to say that she made her bed 
and the other part, you know, made her bed and she needs to sleep in it. And then the other part of me feels compassion for someone who is 15 and understands that they made a dumb choice and, you know, that she could have possibly learned from that and realized that it was a terrible choice. You know, it's a tough situation and I don't think I'd want to be the guy over in the UK that ends up having to make that choice, right? I understand the compassion part of it, um, but I think that the UK uh, government needs to send a message to people um, that they are not going to allow terrorists to return. Um, In addition to that, I think that you might have to worry about the fact of whether or not she could be coming back to the UK with the specific purpose of recruiting more young women. Um, You know, that's how she ended up there. She supposedly she was recruited slash brainwashed out of uh, the mosque, I guess. And, uh, and realistically, she's also she's just one of hundreds of people that have left the UK to join this particular terrorist organization. So that's just something to think about um, moving forward with that story. All right. Second topic here. Um, we had international soccer update. Um, this one's actually going to be pretty short because it's really, it's not a whole lot to talk about. Um, I was kind of right in some of these games and I was wrong on some of them. Um, most of them I was right on. Uh, so this past week we had the second section of the first round in the round of 16 in this year's Champions League. And I know that that's kind of a weird thing to say. So anyway, they usually do home and away games. Right. Each uh, each team gets to play home and away, um, and then you do you add up the total score of the game, and whoever has scored the most goals gets, or if it's a tie, whoever had the most away goals, um, that person gets to move forward. Uh, that's called aggregate. Um, so currently, uh, Atalanta and Real Madrid. Real Madrid won, um, and I'm not really surprised on this one. Um, it t- did take a while for them to score, but Real Madrid did score in the 86th minute. Um, so they are leading 1-0 on aggregate. Um, Atletico Madrid and Chelsea. Um, this one I was actually a little surprised on because Atletico Madrid uh, had played so well, uh, has been playing so well. They're, they're in the top of uh, La Liga. But Chelsea... Uh, still a good team, and um, I just don't think that they're on the same level, but they were actually able to pull that one out, so they won one to nothing. Um, Lazio and Bayern Munich, um, no surprise here. Bayern, Bayern ended up just laying it on thick from uh, from the very beginning, and they ended up winning 4-1 uh, to one against Lazio. Um, Bayern's a strong team. Uh, they're actually probably either the best or the second-best team in the competition. I think that they rival Manchester City very well. Bayern Munich ended up winning it last year, so we'll see uh, how that goes. And then we have Man City and BMG, and I'm going to call them BMG because that's what their name is on the ticker, and it's a little more difficult to say. And uh, not a surprise here, Man City won 2 to nothing. I'm actually surprised that Man City won just by two goals. I figured that they would actually score more because Man City is such a strong team, but it is what it is. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need to blow a team out to uh, to win, especially when you've got two games to to play. Now, the, you know, these teams like Lazio, they have to they have to end up scoring at least three to tie. And I don't know who was who was the home team there, but if they if they whoever scores the most from most away goals ends up winning. All right, so the last topic of the day here 
is going to be the COVID relief bill. Um, and as if anyone would be surprised that the House of Representatives that has a Democratic majority um, did this, they passed the COVID bill and it had a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't even really related to COVID. You know, and that's the problem. If they just add things in that were directly related to COVID, I think they'd have a chance of getting it passed in the Senate. But since they keep adding things that have nothing to do with COVID, I don't think it's going to stand any chance of getting passed in the Senate, which is a problem, right? So I'm going to do a quick rundown of the things that are currently in it, and I'm honestly sure that that's going to end up changing, but we'll see. So COVID relief package, I got $1.9 trillion dollars. In, in aid. Um, so it passed in the House with a vote of 219 to two, to 212, and only two Democrats were the one were uh, broke ranks um, in the vote against it. Uh, uh, yeah, two, two Democrats voted against it, and not a single Republican voted to pass it. So sounds pretty bipartisan to me, right? Um, which, which is that that's the goal, isn't it? Um, so they're calling it the American Rescue Plan, you know, because realistically it makes anyone who votes against it look like the bad guy. And when you call it something like the American Rescue Rescue Plan, it allows you to throw in all kinds of extra things. If they'd have called it the COVID-19 relief package or the COVID-19 relief bill or COVID relief bill or something like that, if they'd have called it something like that, everybody would really heavily, heavily criticize them for it. But if you swap the name up, you just label it as something different. You can basically do whatever the hell you want to do. And that's the way it works, I guess. So what's in this bill? Um, I got my information from the Washington Post. Um, I certainly was not going to go and read this bill. Um, I was planning on staying up tonight. Uh, so I don't want to read this and fall right to sleep. So uh, stimulus checks uh, supposed to be $1,400 in stimulus for people earning less than $75,000 a year, uh, $2,800 for married couples earning less than $150,000. Um, honestly, I think that those numbers need to be lower in regard to the earning. So if you make less than maybe $60,000 or maybe I'd say $50,000 a year, um, if you make less than $50,000 a year, and then we can increase those uh, the, the, from $1,400 maybe to $2,000 or something like that. I think that'd probably be a better option there as opposed to giving people that make $75,000 a year um, extra money. Um, I don't know. From where I come from, $75,000 a year is good money. So maybe it's not a whole lot of money in New York or California or something like that or Los Angeles, but you know where I come from, $75,000 a year, that's good money. Um, so in addition to that, uh, unemployment insurance, I'm pretty sure I got these numbers right. Uh, they, they're going to add $400 to the unemployment benefits. I think that's an increase from $300. Um, those unemployment benefits are set to expire in March, and um, they're going to try to exp extend those out to August. So that's anybody who's, uh, I think it's like 19 million people in the U.S. that are uh, unemployed right now, so it's not so good. Um, you know, and honestly, I think it's about time that the states start to open up. You know, as the vaccine is rolled out in some of these other states that aren't open, they need to take a look at the job that Florida and Texas is doing and, you know, mirror their reopenings to those. Um, they need to get out there and they need to start working. I don't think we can really you know, not afford, but we shouldn't have so many people on unemployment 
for so long. 19 million people is a lot of people. Um, so anyway, the next one, uh, minimum wage. Uh, this is a bit of a hot topic right now. The proposal is to raise the minimum wage from the current level of $7.25, which was established in 2008, I think, and it's going to raise it to $15 an hour. Um, I do think that something needs to be done um, since it has not been increased in in a very long time, but I don't think that this is the right option. I don't think this is the best option. $15 is not the same everywhere, right? Uh, the value of money uh, and the potential uh, for earning ability is is different in places like uh, New York and Los Angeles to pretty much everywhere in rural America. Um, they're just different places, right? $75,000 a year, as I'd mentioned earlier, where I grew up was good money. Uh, you'd probably not really fare all that well if you were doing $75,000 a year in New York City or Los Angeles, either one of those cities, $75,000, you're not very rich. You know, and you can go and look at housing prices and everything. And you can go and look at housing prices and everything to determine that, um, you know, the cost of living is definitely, definitely different in all of these places, you know compensation in the U.S. needs to be looked at, but doubling it right now, I don't think is the right answer. Um, the next thing, pandemic response, this has something to do with COVID, right? Uh, $50 billion is set aside to fund COVID testing sites and contact tracing. Uh, $19 billion is, uh, is to increase the size of public health of the public health workforce. Uh, $16 billion to fund vac- vaccine distribution. Um, next, aid for state and local governments. So we have um, $350 billion uh, to fund state and local governments that, that have found themselves in trouble. And $90 billion of that goes to transportation and infrastructure causes. $47 billion goes to FEMA Disaster Relief Fund. Uh, $28 billion in grants to transit agencies. $11 billion to airports and aviation manufacturers. Two billion to uh, Amtrak, then an additional uh, twelve billion is added for airlines to uh, freeze the layoffs through September. And honestly, this last item, um, I remember back last year at some point, everybody was giving the airlines a lot of shit because the, they thought that the government was going to go and bail, bail them out. And this issue arose because over the last few years, the airlines had actually been doing a lot of stock buybacks. And essentially, all they were doing was enriching the shareholders as a, um, you know, as opposed to keeping the money for a situation such as um, this or maybe some other financial disaster. Um, moving on, uh, schools and child care. There's $130 billion for K-12 through education. It's used to improve ventilation, reduce class sizes, provide PPE, and assist in implementing social distancing. $40 billion for colleges and higher education, and I think it was half of that money, so about $20 billion, was supposed to go to emergency financial aid and grants to prevent hunger and homelessness for students. And I'm surprised they actually didn't throw anything in here for the student loan relief uh, since they were throwing a whole bunch of extra money in there, but I guess they probably didn't want to double the the price of all this. 
because I think student loan debt right now is like $1.8 trillion. So it's pretty pretty high up there. Next, we got $40 billion will go to child care through the Child Care and Development uh, Grant Program. Um, then $1 billion for the Head Start Program that helps low-income families. Um, next one is assistance with food, $5 billion to EVT. Uh, that's electronics, electronic benefits transfer. It's basically food stamps, in which, honestly, I think that this is a really good program. Uh, it's there to help families that are in need. And, you know, I say it's a good – I personally have experience with it because when I was a kid, I remember I was probably like 12 or 13 or something like that, and I just remember talking to my mom about – us having it. Um, I grew up poor. I didn't really have much of anything. And I just remember um, for a a, a portion of time, I think it was about a year until my mom ended up finding a better job. um, We actually ended up having food stamps and everything. So I definitely agree that that is a uh, that is a good program. And uh, it's there. I'm surprised that they were only going to give five billion to that. So especially when they're given 350 billion to other other areas it's 1.9 or 1 point yeah 1.9 trillion dollars and you're going to get 5 billion of it to the to the ebt program maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe i uh maybe i'm looking at it in the wrong wrong aspect but i don't know so 30 billion for rent and uh rent assistance and relief for homeless uh 10 billion for mortgage assistance um, business relief and retirement security. Uh, we got $25 billion in grants for restaurants and bars that have lost revenue for the, from the pandemic. You know, realistically, here's an idea. Maybe you should let them open up. Maybe that would solve their problem. Maybe that would allow for people to, you know, those businesses to make a little bit of money and you wouldn't have to spend $25 billion on it. Um, $15 billion to fund economic injury disaster loan advance of $10,000 per business. And then uh, we have $58 billion in grants for multi-employer pension plans. And uh, they're changing the rules for the single employer pension rules. Uh, cha- yeah, changing, changing the rules for the single employer pensions. Um, so then uh, health care uh, coverage, the bill reduces premiums for low and middle income families. And I didn't actually see uh, the Washington Post say anything about the the income level for that, but it's uh, low and middle income families by increasing the Affordable Care Act's tax credits for 21 uh, to 2021 and 2022. So moving forward from here, uh, so that's actually that's all the stuff in there. That's all the stuff that the Washington Post had. Like I said, I'm not going to go to the actual bill and read the actual bill because it's I'm sure it's actually absolutely ridiculous and it's probably written in all that legal speak to where you can't even really actually understand it anyway. So moving forward from here, um, you know, they need a majority in the Senate to pass the bill. I don't think that that's actually going to happen. Uh, I think that there's going to be um, some senators that realize that some of the stuff in this will actually hurt the economy and that they're going to vote no. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Joe Manchin from West Virginia. He was trending on Twitter here a couple of weeks ago um, regarding all of the stuff with, uh, I guess, just him being in opposition of some some things that the Democratic Party had. Um, I just hope that he's ready, or whoever it is that does it, is ready for uh, the Democratic Party to, to disown them, because that's how it works, right? You can't, if you vote for something that your constituents would be opposed for, Right then, you get disowned by the party as a whole. Right, and and this is the wild thing: is that like the people that live in West Virginia don't believe 
and don't have the same problems as the people that live in New York or the same problems as the people that live in Colorado or the same problems as the people that live in Florida, which is the reason why they all have local representatives. They all have two state senators, right? They have all these people so that those people can actually take care of the problems that they have for themselves in their own cities, their own states. And it shouldn't be Joe Manchin out here making the call for what happens to the guy in West Virginia, I mean, in in New York, just as it shouldn't be Chuck Schumer in New York making the decision as what happens to the guy that lives in El Paso, Texas. The big issue with all of this is that the bill is written in a way that the Dems know that it won't pass. Uh, You know, they write these things that way on purpose, and I think it's for two reasons um, for them, for the Democrats. Right? It allows them to vote yes and look like the good guy. That's, that's reason number one. And reason number two, it allows them to hammer anyone who votes against it. Right? And what I mean by that is when you, when you label something the American Relief Act or American Relief something, the COVID relief bill, you would label it that. And then you put a whole bunch of bullshit in there. What ends up happening is people see through the bullshit and then they vote no because they realize there's no, there's absolutely no way that we're going to end up being able to fund any of these programs. So what ends up happening? They vote against it, and then you as the Democrat get to basically say that they don't care about Americans, right? They know it's a bad bill and that it won't pass. It allows them to say that the Republicans don't care about COVID relief when in reality... I would actually say that the Democrats don't really care about COVID relief because they're not actually putting forth a bill that, a- that would actually have any hope of getting passed. Right? The main issue with all that is if the bill doesn't get passed in the Senate, then it goes back to the House and it takes even longer for aid to get to the American people. Right? If the Democrats had re- written a reasonable bill, reasonable bill, then you could say, that the uh, that they care about the american people but since they're putting all this extra fluff in there and this wish land wish list of stuff it just comes off as disingenuous to me so i don't agree with what they're doing but obviously they have the majority and that's the way that it's going to be for now so in closing we do need to get a handle on this government spending i'm sure that the printing press is working overtime with all the money that the government is given away. Uh, we will see how things will go over the next few weeks and months and years to see if you know this, uh, this bet pays off. Um, the thing that kills me is now that I've actually started to make a little bit of money and uh, from some, some investments that I've done, you know, uh, inflation's about to kick in and all that money that I've made isn't going to be worth as much. Although I got absolutely just blitzed in the stock market last week. So we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens there. So anyway, um, I personally, I blame all the boomers and the generation that came before them on, on all of this stuff. They're the ones that made these decisions and they're the ones that kind of screwed our government up. And, you know, people like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, who have been in the government for federal government at that, have been in there for years, um, 20, 30, 40 years So we'll see how that goes. My question of the day is, you know, we're looking at here at this $1.9 trillion in aid. You know, if it's passed as is, how much of that money is actually going to make its way 
to the everyday Americans, right? Minimum wage will obviously get its get its way to the people if that makes its way through it, which it's probably not going to. But that's the same as the stimulus checks. That's going to make its way to the American people. But the real question is something like the $30 billion that's set aside for home, for homelessness. How much of that, how much of that $30 billion is actually going to find its way to helping the people that have the problem? Right? I would actually personally say it's probably going to be less than half. You know, people got to take their cut along the way. Somebody's got to end up taking the cut for legislating this. Somebody's got to take a cut for writing it. Maybe it's got to be notarized somewhere along the way. And I'm sure that's a fat check. Somebody's got to, and it, where's the money going to come from? It's not going to come from, it's going to come from that $30 billion, right? So somebody's going to take that money and, it, and it's going to get passed through enough people to the point where it gets down to the actual program. And, and none of it, half of it, less than half, I'm sure $15 billion is going to, not, not embezzled, but I'm sure $15 billion is going to be tucked away in fees and other kinds of just fluff, fluffy bullshit just thrown on top of this to end up wasting the government's money. And the government's money is the taxpayer's money. So it's all of our money. So, But as long as the people are making decisions... The people that are making the decisions are bought off by the very same people that they end up legislating to give money to. Nothing's going to ever end up changing. So maybe we should think about all of the decisions that these people are making as we move forward and think about all of these things when the midterm elections come around and maybe the presidential election comes around and maybe take a hard look at the people who are not living up to the things that they actually said that they were going to do. So think about all that stuff and uh, we'll see what happens. So that's all I got for today. Be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe.